Today's reading is 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 to chapter 4 verse 5. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We were just singing about it and we've just heard it spoken of in such strong terms through the Apostle. And I pray that this morning, as we spend the next few minutes thinking and reflecting on the privilege we have in the Bible, the Scriptures and what it means, that you might um, really strengthen our understanding and conviction of that so that it might bring us confidence and assurance in our walk with you and in our daily lives. And we pray it, Father, not just so that we may uh, have a high view of a book, but so that we may have a deeper love and confidence in you as the God who speaks and reveals and that that might make such a difference to the way we live our daily lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week was Easter. The week before that, we finished a a little series in Habakkuk, uh, one of the Old Testament books. And so today we begin a new series. But uh, as I said, it's going to be interrupted because I'm away for a couple of weeks. But we'll pick it up again when I get back. And uh, every year I try and do at least one or two topical series on different subjects. And this year I've decided to preach on a few of the 39 articles. Now, if you don't know what the 39 articles are, shame on you. Get out. No, you don't have to get out. The 39 articles are one of the the three things that in the Anglican Church we call formularies. And the, the three formularies express who we are and what we believe, what our doctrine and practice is. So there's the three, there's the 39 articles. What are the other two? The prayer book. Thank you, Anglicans. And the the ordinals, the last one. The ordinals always the one everyone forgets. That's the, the book with the service of ordaining ministers and bishops and that kind of thing. So they're the three formularies. The 39 articles, the book of common prayer and the ordinal. The 39 articles are 39 statements 
of what uh, the Anglican Church believes, their doctrinal propositions, if you like. It's very interesting to know how many Anglicans know the 39 Articles, what, what the beliefs that undergird our church is. Uh, it's amazing sometimes how many of us don't. Even more worrying, how many ministers in the Anglican Church uh, don't. If you want to have a look at them, then I'd encourage you, go home, Google them. You can find the 39 Articles and have a look uh, through them and see what they are. And um, we're going to, over the next few weeks, apart from those two in a moment, we're going to look at a few of them. We're going to see what they say, see what they mean, and hopefully see a little bit of their significance. And there are some very interesting ones. So um, if you go home and Google them and see one that you'd really like uh, me to look at, write it down and send it through in an email. Tell me the ones that you want to, um, you want to look at. Article 3, here's to, something to whet your, your, your appetite. Article 3 is pretty strange. This is what it says. As Christ died for us and was buried, so also is it to be believed that he went down into hell. That's Article 3. Who'd like to preach on that in a couple of weeks' time? Article 9 is about original sin. If you've ever had questions about original sin and what it is and what it means. Uh, Article 10 is about free will. It's headed free will, but then the article actually basically says we don't have free will, so that might interest you. What's going on there? Article 17 is on predestination, something that a lot of Christians talk about and are worried about. So there are some good ones there. So let me know if you have a look and uh, there are particular ones you you want, then fire it through on an email and I'll ignore that and pick the easy ones for the next uh, few weeks. But today we're looking at Article 6, because in many ways Article 6 is the one that sets up all of them, because Article 6 is really about how we know what we know, how we can have confidence and assurance in what we know about God. And so I want you to have a look at Article 6 behind me. I'm going to ask Andrew, because I'm not preaching on the 2 Timothy 1, um, Andrew, when I'm not looking at something on the slide, if we can put it back to 2 Timothy on the 3.16 part about Scripture, but if we're looking at something, then we'll keep it on that. But have a look at Article 6. Of this, and excuse the language, because it's olden days language, but get the meaning from it. Article 6, of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the names of the Holy Scripture we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church of the names and number of the canonical books and I didn't put the rest down but it just lists them from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus all the way through to to, uh, Revelation. So that's Article 6. So why is Article 6 important in the Anglican Church? It's important because we have to be clear what the ultimate authority is in Christianity. Have a think about that for a moment. See, how do we know who God is? How do we know what God's like, what he stands for or wants? These are huge questions, questions that cause quite different answers in people and we need clarity on the answers. And if there are different ideas or theories, how can we be confident that the one we've got is right and wrong and all those sorts of things? If there's competing ones, how do we know which one stands above the others or has the tiebreaker? Now, the ultimate answer, of course, at one level is, how do we know all these things? The ultimate answer is always what? God himself. God's the one who reveals himself to us, who speaks to us, shows us, teaches us. We don't just come up with ideas that we think about what he might be like, and he shows us, he tells us. But how does he do that? And he does that in a number of ways, and so this becomes an even more controversial and difficult subject in some ways. 
But I want you to know this morning, this is not just theory stuff we're dealing with. This has real cash value for the Christian life. This is important in daily Christian life. For hundreds of years, there have been arguments amongst Christians over how we should view the Lord's Supper. What happens when we share the bread and the wine? Is it something that becomes the the literal body and blood of Jesus? Or is it something that's symbolically taken in faith, reminding us of what the body and blood of Jesus has done for us? And how do we work that out? This is not just a question that's a, a little minor one. It's caused huge problems. How do we work out where we stand on moral issues or ethical issues? There are some huge moral questions facing the church at the moment and it's causing division and differences. How do we know what to believe? Is it personal opinion? Is it uh, the wisdom of the world? Is it the Bible? Is it the laws of the land? Is it what the minister says or the pope or the synod or the bishop? Where does the Bible fit into all this? I still remember, I just spoke about the Minor family a few moments ago, I still remember when uh, the Minor family arrived first from Africa and Steve uh, had been going around the country because he's the director of uh, Church Missionary Society and he'd gone to a number of churches and he spoke back here at St Stephen's again and he said he couldn't believe coming to New Zealand the crisis of confidence in the Bible that he found in New Zealand. And I totally agree with him. That as he was going around, he said that he was coming across Christians and churches who've lost confidence in the Bible. But you can see why. I want us to think about some of these things. Where does the Bible fit into it and where, how does it all work out together? And to begin to think about it, I want to explain or talk about something that Anglicans often speak about in this space on this topic, which is a thing called the three-legged stool. The three, hands up if you've heard of the three-legged stool, not any three-legged stool, the three-legged stool, yep, good. <clears throat> the three-legged stool in Anglican circles is attributed to a guy called Richard Hooker, who was a, an Anglican minister and theologian back in the 16th century. He was one of the key figures in teaching the foundational theology of the Anglican church. And the three-legged stool basically says that when it comes to how we know God and understand God and what the authority is for us as we're trying to work out who God is and what it is, then God's basically given us three areas where we get our knowledge and authority from as Christians. And the three are scripture, so he's given us the Bible, tradition, now what tradition means is that's what the church has historically believed and done. So you've got the Bible, you've got tradition, what the church has historically done and believed, and then thirdly, reason, our minds. So God reveals himself to human beings and we use as our authority those three things forming the three-legged stool, Bible, tradition, reason. Now I think today that three-legged stool isn't enough because most of us would want to add a fourth. You and I live in an age where we no longer look to uh, external sources of authority anymore, we look to internal sources of authority. Uh, We're very much about, I want to judge what I think about that and feel about that, and so I think we have to add experience to it. So it changes it from a three-legged stool to a four-legged chair, if you, you like. Let me explain a little bit more about each leg so you can see what it's saying. And if you want to try and remember it, I use the acronym BRET. B-R-E-T, B-R-E-T. So the first one is B, Bible. Have a think about it for a moment. This is the belief that in the scriptures, God has revealed himself by speaking to us. It's what the 2 Timothy passage said, that the Bible is God breathed out. 
Uh, Notice in the 2 Timothy passage, it doesn't just say that the authors were kind of inspired. It says the words of Scripture themselves were breathed out by God. It's the very word of God. And so as we study the Scriptures, we're finding out who God is and how to live and all those sorts of things. So B for Bible. The second uh, uh, leg of the stool or the chair is R for reason. And what this is saying is that God's made human beings in his own image. He's given us a brain so that we can learn and think and comprehend and rationalise. So he's given us all the mental and rational capabilities necessary to understand and comprehend who he is and the world around us and how we should live. So that's R for reason. Then third is T for tradition. And what this recognises is that God has always worked through people whether it's Abraham and his family, whether it's the nation of Israel, whether it's the church, God has always gathered his people together and has led them into truth. And so through individual Christians and churches and synods and councils and popes and through tradition, God has revealed himself to the world so that we can know him and live in the light of him. So T for tradition. And then lastly, here's the extra leg I think we need to add today, is E for experience. The thinking behind this is that God is the creator of this world, but he's still in this world and active in this world today. He's still active in people, in human beings, uh, prompting them, nudging them, sometimes giving them visions or speaking to them. And through these experiences in life, uh, we come to know who God is and what he's like and what he wants from us. So that's E for experience. As you said, see Brett, Bible, reason, experience, tradition. Now, the important thing to recognise immediately is all four of those contain truth. All of them are correct in in one way or another, and no one really stands on just one point to the exclusion of the other. To read and understand the Bible involves using your mind, your reason. To just go on your experiences personally without thinking about what God has done through the history of the church and and this people is arrogant and silly. So you can't stand on any one of those four by themselves, which is why the image of a three-legged stool or a four-legged chair is very popular, because it rightly says that we use all of them to come to know who God is and what he's like. God speaks in the Bible? Absolutely. But he also uses the minds that he's given us and he also speaks through the church and he certainly works in our lives and experiences. So we come to know God and go on knowing him through all these sources. However, do you see a problem with this model? There are serious limitations to the three-legged stool or four-legged chair. See, what if someone comes to see me in my office tomorrow morning knocks on the door, comes in, sits down on a chair and says, Jay, I don't love my wife anymore and God has told me to leave her and the kids and move in with another lady that I've met. Well, how do I respond? What do I say? How do I know what God does think about this and how should I respond helpfully for the person who's come for advice and counsel? The person's experience is clearly saying, God's saying to them, leave your family and take up with another person. The Bible, I'm pretty sure, clearly says no. So we've got a one-all tie at the moment. Tradition, I would argue, says no. The church has frowned upon divorce, even if it occasionally reluctantly allows it, so you've now got two to one. Well, then you're left with reason, and reason, you could probably go one of two ways. 
But potentially you could argue, well, it's going to be worse for the children to be part of a loveless marriage, so it's better if you go. I wouldn't argue that way, but potentially you could. Now you've got a two-all draw. What do you do? How do we know God and what he wants? What he expects or demands? What his preferences are? Is there a way of knowing a casting vote? Or on some issues, do certain things take precedence? Do you see the problem that the three-legged stool or the four-legged chair presents? It doesn't actually give any certainty or confidence. A person is still left in murky waters. And in fact, this is not always the case, but what tends to happen is, more often than not, people go with their personal preference and then justify it. Well, this is where this morning I want to, as strongly as I can, dispel some falsehoods, some nonsense which has crept into Anglican discussions because we're part of an Anglican church here and we should know who we are and what we stand for and those sorts of things. Uh, There are claims made by people on this issue and about this subject which are just not true and it's good for us to be aware of it because Richard Hooker never came up with a thing called the three-legged stool like I've just explained it. Nowhere in his work that I've read uh, does he use that term And in the one place where he does talk about the topic, when he writes about it, he actually writes about it in a a way which undercuts the point that that I've just uh, brought to you. Let me explain. When people speak of the three-legged stool, what they're envisaging, what they're speaking of, is three separate, equally valid and important sources of knowledge and authority. Well, Hooker never spoke like that. Uh, Hooker wrote of the three elements in his um, magnum opus, an eight-volume work called Of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Eight volumes of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Perfect bedtime reading because you'll only be reading for a short time. (laughs) Now, if you ever read through that, you'll get to a part in book five which I'll read to you here. Again, it's different language, but listen to what Hooker says here. This is what Hooker says. Be it in matter of the one kind or the other, what scripture doth plainly deliver, to that the first place both of credit and obedience is due. The next whereunto is whatsoever any man can necessarily conclude by force of reason. After these, the voice of the church succeedeth. Do you see what he's just said there? Rather than the three legs being of equal length and importance, for which Hooker's always talked about today, Hooker says there's a clear priority and clear hierarchy. First is scripture. Whatever scripture plainly teaches, that's number one. That receives number one of credit and obedience. Then he actually hierarchies the next two as well. Then reason, then tradition. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the other three sources of reason and tradition and experience are not still helpful. They are and they can be and they have an important part to play but always subordinate to scripture. That's what Article 6 safeguards. It explicitly states that the scriptures are the non-negotiable. We are a faith of the book, if you like, and it's our authority. And the 39 articles repeatedly demonstrate that as you go through them. What's Article 8 in the 39 Articles? It's it's the one where we accept the creeds. What are the three main creeds? Apostles, Nicene, Athanasius. Exactly right. Now, in in Article 8, except... Well done, well done. Uh, In Article 8, it accepts those three creeds. Why? 
because they can be, quote, proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Do you see what's being said there? The creeds only get in because they fit in with the Scripture, because the Scripture is the authority. In fact, no less than 10 of the 39 articles either affirm a belief or practice or reject a belief or practice solely because of what the Scriptures say about it. So Article 28, when it says, I was just talking about the Lord's Supper before, when it says that transubstantiation is repugnant, it's, why is that? Because it cannot be proved by holy writ. It's the Bible that kind of says it. And the scriptures are explicitly referred to as the word of God in eight of them. That's what the reading from 2 Timothy was about. Because we believe that the scriptures are God speaking to us. That's why Phil and Chris take so much of their, their life passionately translating the Bible because here is God speaking to us. In fact, in Article 20, can we have Article 20 up? The Anglican Church is only given authority in as much as it agrees with the word of God. Have a look at Article 20. Again, sorry about the language, but hopefully you can see what it means. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith, and yet it's not lawful for the church to ordain anything that's contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and keeper of holy writ, yet, as it ought not to degree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. I hope you can see what that's saying. We can't do anything against scripture because there's the baseline, there's the authority. I hope you can see that the clear position of the Anglican Church has always been in line with what the Bible teaches about itself, that it is the powerful, authoritative word of God and is therefore the ultimate authority. It's why after our readings at church, in an Anglican church, we say what? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Because God has spoken. The word and spirit work together in the hearts, minds and lives of believers. We mustn't have a crisis of confidence in the word of God. We can wrestle with it. We can have difficulties with it. Every time I pick it up and have to preach on a Sunday, I go, oh no, what does this mean? And we search it. But it is the word of God. As Ephesians says, it's the sword of the spirit. As Hebrews says, it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. As Isaiah 55 says, it goes out from the Lord's mouth and will not return to him empty, but will accomplish everything he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. We have the word of God and we should be confident in it. Now we'll still use reason, tradition, experiences, but if there's conflict or clarity, the Bible's number one. So my advice to the person who comes to my door on Monday sits down on the chair and says, God told him to leave his wife and kids is, no, God didn't. And we'll talk about that a little bit more and we'll pray together and we may shed a few tears, but I'm pretty confident God didn't say that. And we'll think about it. Uh, The Bible trumps in that way. But that's not all of it though, is it? Have a think about something else, like another topic in Christianity, like baptism. Uh, Baptism is an area within Christianity where the Bible is not as black or white as we might like and there's always been differing opinions over how you do it and when and those sorts of things. Should you baptise babies by um, pouring a little bit of water over their head like Anglicans do or should you only baptise people who are of an age and stage where they can state their own faith and do it by immersion? Kind of pushing them down. (laughs) Here's an issue where the Bible doesn't spell everything out. 
And so it's very possible that because of a person's reason and because of a person's tradition and because of a person's experience, they will be in a slightly different place with other Christians but still in line with the Bible. And I know this from personal experience. Confession time, I'm from a mixed marriage. So Jamie comes from a Baptist background and I come from a Christian one. No, (laughs) Jamie comes from a Baptist background. Sorry. I I come from an Anglican background. Therefore, on baptism, as I've thought about the issue, using my reason with my Anglican background, I lean towards infant baptism. Uh, Jamie, with her Baptist background, not using any reason, leans towards towards, uh, adult baptism. But neither of us have fallen outside the Bible's teaching. We've used reason, tradition and experience to come to a different position on a grey area. Um, I was going to say I'm clearly more faithful, but I'm going to stop those jokes. They're only funny because Jamie's obviously more powerful because none of our children were baptised as babies. So, <clears throat> But we're both being authentic to the scriptures. Now, if one of us actually said to the other, do you know what, I've been thinking about baptism, I don't think we need to do it anymore. Whoa, suddenly we've crossed a line because the Bible clearly says baptism's important for believers. But do you see the, the, the kind of grey? So many of the current problems facing the church today are because we've lost confidence in the word of God. It's the number one authority in matters of faith and conduct. Now, we need to read it carefully. We need to understand it thoughtfully. But we must hold on to it as the final word. Over and above public opinion, over and above the culture around us, over and above personal preference, over and above any other competing voices. It is supreme. That's our Anglican position, although I worry that in recent times it no longer seems to be what we're doing in practice. I'm calling us back to a renewed confidence that the scriptures are ultimate for us and that sometimes following them may make us wade against those other competing voices. But before I finish, I just do want to give a word of warning because there are traps that having the Bible as your authority can lead us into. We can read it simplistically or in a reductionist manner, uh, where we just use the Bible as a weapon, and it doesn't help anyone, and it certainly doesn't kind of further conversations. We just use it as a hammer to smack someone over their head with. That's not what I'm talking about. We want to study it carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully. The other big danger of seeing the Scriptures in such an authority is that we can become like Pharisees in the New Testament. Remember, the Pharisees were big on the authority of the word of God. But with them, somehow, along the line, it became all about head and law rather than heart and faith. That's always a big danger for those of us Christians who hold the word of God to a high authority. If you're more liberal in your faith, you're never going to become a Pharisee because you don't see it as that important. But if you're more conservative in your faith, you, we're the ones like, who may fall into that trap. The way we make sure we don't fall into it is we realise the Bible's not an end in and of itself. We've got it so that we might know and love and delight in the Lord who speaks it. So that we might trust him and know the promises he's given us. So that we might be able to share him effectively with those around us. It's why Bible knowledge itself is never enough. Or even commitment to faithfulness to scripture is not enough. The very purpose of them is to bring us to the Lord Jesus. And when you've got that view of the scriptures, still high authority, but it's leading us to Jesus, that will mean that we've got humility and love when we debate with other people. 
we, because we're not just out to win arguments or shout louder or prove points. We actually want people to see the grace that's only found in the Lord Jesus. And we'll use the Bible the right way, not the wrong way. But it's worth mentioning that warning of not being a Pharisee because we can slip into it. So as I finish, can you see Article 6 helps remind us to have confidence in the Scriptures. It's what we stand for against the crisis that I think Steve Miner rightly spoke about. The Bible is God's word and our ultimate authority in faith and conduct. That's what the Bible teaches about itself. That's what our formularies as an Anglican church declare. Uh, I hope that's what you and I believe and live, that his word is powerful as his spirit uses it for his purposes. It's become trendy nowadays to say that part of the role of the church or a Christian is to make the Bible relevant to people. What a load of nonsense. I know what people say when they, what they mean when they say it, but it's just, who am I to make the, the Bible relevant to people? The Bible is relevant. It is God's revelation of himself that stands above everything else in this world as our authority and faith and conduct. It's utterly relevant. It's inherently relevant. It's perfectly relevant. We may try to remind people of its relevance or work hard at showing them so that they can see its relevance, but let's never patronise that the Bible needs us to make it relevant. It is. I pray that we would know that, live by it, and point people to the Lord Jesus, who's the true word of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for your word, which is a light for our feet. We thank you for the lamp of the word. We thank you that, uh, you know, forgive us for those times when so often we, we forget what a privilege we have in our hands and on our shelves. And I pray that we would continue to study it, seek to live by it, to know it, not just as an end in and of itself, but so that we may come to a deeper knowledge and love of you and that that might change our lives and the way we're able to share the good news of the Lord Jesus. Father, give us confidence in what you've spoken, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.